follow after peace. The Holy Spirit has taught us in verse 18, which we ended with last Lord's Day, that serving the Lord Jesus and pleasing God by loving one another is one of the infallible proofs that God's kingdom has come down to us and that we are God's children and that he rules in us by his spirit. Now, how important is love? Turn to 1 John chapter 4, verse 7. 1 John is one of the, those sections of scriptures that you ought to read at least quarterly because it puts our faith in a clear perspective and more than any other single section of scripture tells us what is most important and what we should be focused upon. 1 John 4 7. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God, and everyone that loveth is born of God and knoweth God. He that loveth not knoweth not, for God is love. Can you imagine if John had put in that verse, everyone who refrains from eating pig is born of God and knoweth God? Or everyone who refrains from drinking wine or drinketh wine knoweth God and loveth God. You see, this is not secondary issue territory. This is fundamental, one of the clear marks that we belong to God in Christ. And that his kingdom has come down to us that we love one another. Not, we don't bite and devour one another, as Paul warned in Ephesians 5, because if we did that, how can we say that we have the love of God dwelling in us? So in a world that is swirling with chaos, swirling with schemes, swirling with hatred within the body of Christ, we must love, because Jesus Christ loved us to the end because he washed our feet, because he gave us the new commandment, let us love one another as I have loved you. Now, of course, we must realize that our Lord did not love us and lay down his life for us because we deserved it, because he saw that Gary was going to be doctrinally orthodox. He's going to be a really faithful disciple because he's going to love me. No, he loved a wretch. He loved a filthy criminal before God's majesty. Therefore, we are to love one another. Yet, we don't deserve any consideration of God's love. None. Now again here, we've got to be really careful. Because it is tempting, if you've been a Christian for very long, you start thinking, well, you know... There is some good in me. Yes, God's grace does work powerfully in believers. But everything good in us comes from the Lord and from his grace. So we can take no credit for it at all. So we should never love one another or treat one another kindly or respectfully because we deserve it. But because Christ calls us to do so. Paul describes in verse 18 of Romans 14 
This is the life that is pleasing to Christ, acceptable to God and approved by men. Now, to some men, it wouldn't be approved because there are some men in the church who are constantly seeking to gather followers for themselves. But to men who say with John the Baptist, he must increase, but I must decrease, a life of lowliness, humility, meekness, gentleness is always going to be the most beautiful life of all. So, within the context of Romans 14 then, ritual differences of meat, to eat or not to eat, wine to drink or not to drink, various ceremonial days to observe or not deserve to observe, these should not trouble us. Those should not swamp love under our pride. And when they do, we know what happens. Offenses are taken easily, given easily. Everything a man says or doesn't say is evaluated through the grid of prejudice and favorites. But notice the Holy Spirit in verse 19 commands us to follow after the things which make for peace and those things which build up. And he has already shown us the way within this chapter. Latitude or freedom must be allowed in secondary issues of ritual and practice or of things that God's word does not say clearly or imply directly, which we may have disputes about. We must not judge others for having a different opinion about these secondary things. According to verse 1 of chapter 14, we should not argue with one another about these things. Instead, we should seek greater unity among ourselves by speaking of the things that matter most, the glory and the love of God, the goodness of God, what God is doing in our lives. When was the last time you shared with someone Let me tell you how the Lord answered my prayer this week. Let me tell you what the Lord did for me this week. Let me tell you how the Lord led me to repentance. Let me tell you how the Lord sustained me through a heavy work week when I didn't even know how in the world I was going to make it through. When we talk about these things, when we talk about Jesus Christ, when we are humbled before him and love him, then secondary differences will matter much less. And when they must be discussed, and sometimes they must be, we will be able to do it without suspicion or hurt feelings or pride or having everyone think my opinion to take my opinion on it, because what really counts is us expressing the meekness and the gentleness of Christ. And it's better if you have to make this choice to be wrong, but have the meekness and gentleness of Christ than to be right without it. Now, I'm not encouraging anyone, of course, to be wrong, I'm encouraging everyone to study scripture. But here, love is so fundamental. Notice, John did not say, unless you're right about everything, you can't be born of God. He didn't say, the one who is right about everything and can bring everyone to his side, we know that he is born of God. 
No, John says, love. And what is the model of love? Christ. And what was his example of love? Self-denial, humiliation, washing the feet of others, and laying down his life on the cross. So we can, by the power of the Holy Spirit, by the love of Christ within us, we can live this way. But if so, why are there so many denominations of Christians? Why is there so much bickering among those who profess the name of Christ? I want to make three quick points here. Some divisions are necessary. Now hear me very clearly. First, let's look at two verses. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 19. For there must also be heresies among you or divisions, that they which are approved may be made manifest among you. 1 John chapter 2, verse 19. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have no doubt continued with us, but they went out that it might be made manifest that they were not of us. So there are some divisions, and we need to especially hear this in our anti-doctrine, anti-thinking age, that not all differences among professing believers are sinful. Not all of them are unjustified. If men deny that God created the world in six 24-hour days, or if they speak of justification as being merely covenant faithfulness instead of Christ imputed righteousness alone, if they say men can worship God however they want to, don't bother with scripture on this point, or if they deny the believers need to obey God, or they cheapen grace and say, hey, it's okay for Christians to curse a little bit, but because that shows our liberty in Christ. And don't worry about sin. If they make grace a license to sin, then of course division is necessary. For upon these truths, the whole edifice of the Christian religion stands or falls. So many of the divisions that exist in the visible Catholic Church today are the result of the bride of Christ having to come out from among false doctrine so that the truth of God and his authority can be preserved. And in that case, coming out is actually keeping the peace. For we can't have peace unless we are submitting to God's truth. But there are other differences within the body of Christ that do not prevent us from having unity, albeit in perfect unity. And here, it's not a question about refusing to submit to God's truth or rebels who are trying to redefine doctrine or encouraging others to compromise with the spirit of the age, saying the zeal for winning souls must mean that God's truth at times must take a back seat, those sort of things. But there are sincere believers with whom we have a difference of understanding about God's word so that we can't be joined together firm, formally, but we are 
one with them. There is a common submission and desire to submit to God's truth, and there is where the truth, where the church really exists. In Philippians 3.3, there is a good apostolic definition of not everything, but in a concise way, where the church is. For we are the circumcised, Paul writes to the Gentiles, the true church of God, which, three things, worship God in the Spirit, rejoice in Jesus Christ, and put no confidence in the flesh, or no works. There's God's grace, Christ alone, faith alone, and worship of God. Now that kind of those now what kind of differences would this be? Well, secondary aspects of worship, elements of worship, different applications of commonly held doctrines and commitment to God's law, mode of baptism, form of church government. These are regrettable, but they do not prevent us from recognizing that God's truth is there, that God's church is there. And hopefully they will recognize the same about us, and we should then endeavor to grow more in our understanding and like-mindedness with these brothers and sisters. So it is not charitable or helpful to exacerbate these differences by speaking arrogantly, refusing to seek unity in God's truth, or somehow dismissing them as being unworthy of our respect and attention. But as Paul brings us then to verses 20 and 21, there is a third category of these differences, and that is what he is dealing with here, and he says, listen, it is very possible within the body of believers that we can live with secondary differences of ritual or practice. It's not that God's truth is relative, as many will say today, or that both parties are right. It is simply that love must trump these differences. We must pursue peace by speaking peaceably with one another, by thinking the best of one another, as Peter said, covering a multitude of sins with love. Remember Peter's question. Lord, should I be magnanimous and forgive my brother seven times if he sins against me? Thankfully, Jesus didn't say, yeah, but on that eighth one, go to war with him. He said, just keep doing it. Seventy times seven. Seven in the Bible is a number for a lot, beloved. So just keep doing it. Keep forgiving your brother, being willing to continue seeking Peace. How do we pursue peace? If you want to last, let me mention a few. Speak peaceably. Think peaceably. Forgive a multitude of sins. Cover some sins with love. Be willing to comfort and be comforted with meekness and gentleness. Pray for one another constantly. I found in my own life it is hard to be upset with anyone more than five minutes if you are before the throne of grace praying for them. So show hospitality to one another and foster eternal relationships. Do you know that is what we are supposed to be doing? Fostering eternal relationships with one another? 
How? By focusing on first things. 1 Corinthians 15, 3, the things of first importance. Jesus Christ crucified, raised from the dead, reigning, gifting his church and dwelling his church, calling us out of the world to be his disciples, loving one another as he loved us. Focus on these things and unity and love and peace and joy will grow within the body. And that is why he says there at the end of verse 19, edify. That is a building word. Build up one another. What is Jesus doing right now? Matthew 16, 18, I will build my church. Are you? Are we? Are we joining with him in this? No, I just come and go and I don't really speak to anyone if I can help it. That's not building up the church. That's not joining with Christ. Maybe there are other times, and we all do this, a little bit of gossip, a few snide remarks. Hey, did you hear about so-and-so? That is not what our Lord is doing. The Lord Jesus Christ is building up, he's edifying, beautifying his church. So what a privilege to be able to join with him in edifying one another. Let me remind you that this building that Jesus is doing, he's not building the Wagner building or the Loomis building or the Rob building as if to say, well, this is my church and here my opinions are sacrosanct. There is only one building, and it is the building of God. We are one body in the Lord, and it is the height of arrogance to think that my family, our church body, our group of churches formed into a presbytery, that that is really the true church of God. Just remember this. Few things contribute more to division and weakness in the body itself then those that believe the idea that we are the supreme court of truth in the land, that the mind of Christ came to rest here, and this is where it primarily is, for light emanates from my family, from me, from my church. We're the best. Really? Well, that's how many think today. Oh, how far we have gotten from, he must increase, but I must decrease. You see, the church is not a product. The gospel is not a commodity. Worship is not a buffet or a coffee shop to do what we like and prefer. We serve the living God. We live before the face of God, not before men. Let us never think that we, are the real Christians, and everyone else is just barely Christian. Now, before we go on, let me mention this. I am Reformed, but not because I hold firmly and ardently to a Reformed tradition, as much as to the idea that the Reformed faith best summarizes the system of doctrine taught in God's Word. That's why I am Reformed. 
reading the Bible, studying scripture, studying the confessions, having been in different communities and read different religious material. And to the degree that we want to label ourselves at all, I am reformed because I believe that is what scripture teaches. Because it unfolds Christ to us. It expresses his fullness most clearly. But if we're going to be reformed, or Presbyterian, or Baptist, or whatever other church people think is wonderful today because they think this is it, then don't expect God to bless it. Don't expect it to grow. Because God will not share his glory with another. And that includes the tradition of Martin Luther and John Calvin and Augustine and all the way back to the other saints throughout the medieval period, all the way back to the apostles. Notice Paul never encouraged, Peter never encouraged call us the church of Peter, the church of Paul. That's not it. It's the church of Jesus Christ. And each one of us must come as humble learners to his feet. He's the only master. We are all brethren and servants of one another. So practically, Within the body, then, verse 20, don't destroy the work of God for meat and drink for secondary things that just aren't critical. Don't. And I think this is particularly directed to the strong. Don't use your liberty as a club to beat someone else, a weaker brother, over the head. The weaker are just as much the work of God as the stronger are. Now our Savior certainly has cleansed all foods, verse 20. All things are pure, but for a weaker brother, to eat certain foods in that day, to use this context, to drink wine, he adds here, which obviously shows that it is not just a Jewish thing, because that wasn't part of the Jewish ceremony So there were other influences besides the Jewish ones that Paul is addressing here. Backgrounds that people have, esoteric religious ideas that they brought with them into the New Testament church. Paul said, if a weaker brother does a certain thing, he offends his conscience. So to the strong then, this beautiful line comes down in verse 21. It's good neither to eat flesh or drink wine or do anything whereby thy brother stumbles or is offended or made weak. But we have liberty. Yes, Paul has already said this. We've studied it already. You can do these things, but within the body, love, the love of Christ, the power and the glory and the grace and the gospel, these things trump the enjoyment and exercise of our liberty. So we should be endeavoring to build up one another. Not, well, I can do this. Yeah, okay, so you can do it. But that's not the most important thing. God has not given us liberty so that we can then turn the church into a forum to referee debates about various esoteric secondary issues, ritual differences. That is not what the church is for. We are the true circumcision 
who worship God, and that means we bow before him. We are humbled before him. You have not worshipped God today, beloved. If you just sit there in your seat and you look at my ugly mug. You haven't worshipped God. That's not what worshipping God is. Worshipping God is when we come before him and praise him and we call upon him. We thank him for his mercies received. We confess our sins. The eye of faith looks up and sees heaven opened up at some level. And there are the angels worshipping him and the spirits of just men made perfect. And God rules over all and we bow before his majesty. So just sitting there doesn't mean We've worshipped him. And if we don't worship him, we are not a true church. We must come before him and bow and love him and adore him. There must be a certain degree of enthusiasm. Now, you might say, well, that's not my personality. Well, then you better ask God to change it. Because when we get to heaven... And we see him. You're not just going to be sitting there in the back row and say, yeah, this is all pretty interesting. I'll just kind of sit here and reflect on all of this. I mean, personality aside, we're different, obviously. But there ought to be a sense of I've prepared myself today for worship. I've had some quiet time with the Lord. Beloved, read the 90s sections of the Psalms and up through the 110s and then the 140s and the 140s, 150s to get yourself prepared to worship so that we can draw near to the Lord and have him draw near to us and we can praise him. That's what builds up the body, not saying, you know what, I've got to convince that guy that my way of doing this is right. I've got to convince that brother that he ought to go ahead and drink wine. It's good. I need to convince him. No, those kinds of issues don't build up the body. That doesn't pursue its purity and peace. It can be ugly. It's loveless. It's actually a weakening of my brother. Now, does a weaker conscience need to be strengthened and made clearer on some of these issues? Certainly. But how are we to go about this? Through humility, through meekness, through coming together as humble learners of God's word, not through pressure or debating, ridicule, withholding affection and respect until someone takes my opinion. Now, of course, the stronger may look at this and say, you've got to be kidding me. I've got liberty here. I can do this. But look at what Paul says in verse 22. Do you have faith? Have it to yourself before God. Do you mean I'm supposed to deny myself and the right that I have to enjoy this or that or to do this or that or not to do this or that as the case may be? Well, remember, the primary purpose of the freedom we have in Christ, deliverance from sin, our confession wisely says That the Lord has left our consciences free from the doctrines and the commandments of men. The primary reason God has done this for us is not so that we can then wave our flag 
we are the wine drinkers, we are this or we are that. We don't feel bound by men's scruples and cultural expectations. Look at our freedom. That's not why God has given us liberty. He has given us liberty so that we can praise Him for His grace and be humbled by His goodness. And where that does not exist, liberty always turns into license and into pride, and it becomes divisive. I've seen it, beloved. I've seen where we've been given the liberty by God to enjoy strong drink and moderation, but not all men have that faith. Some come from different backgrounds, and their consciences are weak, and they've seen how devastating drunkenness is in families and lives it's not a disease that is devastating. It's out-of-control drunkenness. The abuse that comes to spouses and children, they've determined to never touch the stuff. So they come into a church, and the church is waving the flag around. This is what we do here. Pick your favorite secondary thing. If a banner is being waved around, we're not honoring God this doesn't build up the body of Christ. This doesn't show love for one another. It makes a weaker brother feel like a second-class citizen. It troubles his conscience. As Paul says there at the end of verse 21, it puts a stumbling block in front of him. It offends him, and it makes him weak. At the end of verse 20, it's evil for the man who eats and takes offense. <clears throat> it's not that it is really sin as we saw last Lord's Day. But for his conscience, it is. Because his conscience is not illumined yet. Or God hasn't given him the grace to see that this is not a sin. So he takes offense. So Paul says there at the end of verse 22, Listen, do you have faith that you can eat this or not eat this or go here or not go here? Secondary things. Great, but do it before God. Worship Him. Love Him for His grace to us in freeing us because happy is He who condemneth not Himself in that which He allows. If your conscience is approving what you are doing, assuming it's not obviously sin, we can't take this and run in a direction the Holy Spirit never intended, but it is a blessing. But, don't impose your happiness onto other people. I know that sounds kind of crazy, doesn't it, for me to say. Well, I'm happy doing this. I'm happy eating pulled pork. I'm, I'm happy drinking wine. And my brother should be happy too. Well, maybe his conscience will not permit it. So verse 23, if he doubts and doubt there, is a very strong word. He is damned or condemned. Now this is of such importance that I want everyone to listen carefully. I will apply it contextually first and then make some broader applications. But hear what he is saying. So, if by our arguing the weaker brother into doing something that is against his conscience, if he does it, he is weakened. He has stumbled. He's damned. Now, don't think he means this eternally here. 
but I believe he means there is a grief that comes into his conscience that he doesn't have any confidence left that God approves of what he is doing, and if he goes against his conscience in on lesser things, they really aren't sin, but he thinks they are. What is he going to do in greater things? So if the stronger encourage the weaker to do this, we are guilty of tremendous lovelessness and harm. So to the strong, <clears throat> the application is, are you being arrogant in the enjoyment of your liberty? Maybe you feel like, hey, it's fine for me to do this. I don't see that scripture teaches that this is sinful for me to do. Again, you've got to be careful. You don't have the right or private judgment of private judgment, absolutely. Or maybe you feel like, no, I really feel like I should do this. And then it's not a far jump from there to say, well, I believe everyone else should do this too, even though it's not directly commanded, or as our confession says, maybe it's derived, not maybe derived by good and necessary consequences from Scripture. We have to be careful. The strong should not argue or belittle the weak, and the weak should not judge the strong. Because whatever is not of faith, it says here, is sin. Let me explain this. I think very simply it means this. For us to have any assurance of God's love and peace, we have to know that he is pleased with us. So if we don't have that assurance in our faith that God is pleased with us, that this is pleasing to God, that this is serving Jesus, then it is sin for us. Now, it may not be an actual sin. It may not be an actual transgression of the law of God, but to our conscience, it is. What is Paul getting at here? Simply this. Every disciple of Jesus Christ, the passion of his life is, is what I am doing pleasing to the Lord. Is that your passion, beloved? Because if it's not, if we are not assured in our consciences that this is pleasing to God, we shouldn't move forward an inch. So on the one hand, this liberty thing is great. Our confession speaks highly of it. Scripture speaks highly of it. Yes, Christ has made us free. But we better be sure that the way we are using our liberty, that our conscience assures us that God is pleased with this, because that is what matters. Not that I get to do what I want to do. Do I get to live like I want to live? Do I get to drink like I want to drink, eat like I want to eat, go where I want to go, do what I want to go? That is not the issue for a disciple. Because when we came to Jesus, we came before his cross and we threw all of that away and said, He who would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. Passion must become Lord, does this please you? That can't lead me to my little brain or 
to my little experiences or to how my family did it or how other cultures do it. That must lead us to one place, Scripture. And then that leads us to the body of Christ as well because I can't interpret Scripture in a vacuum. My rule has always been if the leading men of God from the past have interpreted a passage one way, and it seems to be pretty consistent that this has been the witness bearing of the Holy Spirit through the ages, then I'm not free to take another position because it's not like I'm studying the Bible in the vacuum of me. So when we talk about whatever is not of faith is sin, then we need to be persuaded that how we are living is pleasing to God because if our conscience is grieved and we think God is not pleased with me, are we going to draw near to him with the assurance of his love to speak of his grace? No. We're going to feel guilty all the time. And there's no power in guilt. So when we come to live this way, We have to come to the word and we have to come to the body because iron sharpens iron. The mind of Christ is not given to just one believer, but to the whole body. So a few questions here. Are you doing things, living ways that in the back of your mind you are thinking to yourself, I really don't know if God is pleased with me. Stop what you are doing. Stop, because the thing about it is, if your conscience, the inner moral governor, the barometer of your soul is troubled, it doesn't always mean that you're doing something wrong by no means. Our consciences can be ignorant in certain areas, uninformed in certain areas, but it is a good indicator that I need to get settled on this thing before God. Because the most important thing is that I am pleasing him. And without faith, it is impossible to please God. I must be persuaded that this is pleasing him or I just can't move forward. Is it pleasing to the Lord that I watch this movie? Go here with this person, date this person, marry this person, engage in this activity? I mean, we can take this and go in any direction you want to. But is the way I am living towards my husband, does it please Jesus Christ? Well, how do I know? Through the word. Is how I am living towards my wife pleasing to the Lord Jesus Christ? Well, you know, I think it is. I'm I'm going to bring her some flowers this evening. I mean, that's got to count for something, right? No, it counts for nothing. Unless we are treating her well and living according to God's word toward her. Well, I think this is okay. But that's not how a disciple lives. And if I can just get one point across to you from this passage today, that would be it. We live in an age of such casual discipleship. Such say, hey, you know... I don't think that's all that bad. I'll just make it up to God later on. I'll give something else up, and then I can just go ahead and do this. Paul comes to the end here and with this weaker and stronger motif. 
He's already introduced the idea of the kingdom of God in verse 17. And then he comes down to this idea of discipleship in verse 23. Whatever we do, we need to be persuaded that it is pleasing to God, that we can do it in good faith before him. Now, that doesn't mean I can skip brushing my teeth tonight or do I have to eat five vegetables today because someone said that is what is pleasing to God. Paul and the Holy Spirit certainly wouldn't turn it into that kind of silliness. But when it comes to how we relate to one another in the body, that's the context here. The way we relate to one another in the body. With the way we relate to the body of Christ. Is it pleasing to God? Oh, I don't know. Oh, maybe sometimes. Maybe once a month when I've been treated right. Let me ask another question. How close are you to the body of Christ? Because it would have been easier in Paul's day with the church being very new, at least in its Gentile expansion mode, to just go and separate. I mean, we need another church on the corner anyway, right? So this is the church of the no wine drinkers. This is the church of pulled pork eaters. This is the church of the non-pulled pork eaters. And just go and set up over there and... You can do what you want to do. But Paul is laboring furiously for there to be unity within the body, even in the presence of these secondary differences of ritual and background and circumstances. So what is the goal here? What is the main passion? The body of Christ needs to be close and unified and not be torn asunder by the things of relative insignificance. So how close are you to the body of Christ, to other believers? And I'm not talking about just the people who are in agreement with you on certain secondary issues. I'm talking about the body as a whole. Are you loving the body of Christ Are you transparent before the body of Christ? Think about the human body. My toes don't have walls between the rest of my foot. There is a free flow of blood, nourishment between all the parts of the body. And that is the great model Scripture gives us. Are we loving? Are we serving? Is the church even in our thoughts Paul talked about this at the end of Galatians. If I love you more, will you love me less? And he says, be it not so, because I will continue to spend and be spent for you. This is to be our attitude towards the body. I need the body. I am not complete. I'm not going to allow secondary differences to keep me from serving, loving, and being transparent. That kind of spirit within a body, that would unite and encourage a congregation, would it not? I see this especially among the ladies here. And praise God for all of you, the service, the babysitting, the things that go on behind the scenes that don't ever get put in the bulletin. It's tremendous. That needs to be throughout the body because we are not healthy unless we are one 
serving one another. Neither you nor I have the mind of Christ. I don't have all the gifts, neither do you. I don't have all of his grace, neither do you. We are strong only when we strive and we work together. Notice here how Paul never mentions the evil one, Satan. But by mentioning the kingdom of God, we should obviously think of the flip side of that, which is the kingdom of Satan, as the shorter catechism calls it. Are we going to let him in and let him destroy our unity with hurt feelings and suspicions and cliques over secondary issues? A second question, closely related. How can it become our passion to serve Jesus like this? Well, we've got to know him. Again, I encourage you, read the Gospels. Read the Gospels and don't just say, well, I've read them. It won't do you any good at all if you treat them like a Dickens novel. Read the Gospels and pray before you read one line. Lord, show me your glory. I want to see your loveliness, your, your saving power, your compassion, your omniscience, your goodness, your grace, your love. That's how we want to be as Christ's disciples. Why, why do you think Philip and Andrew and Peter in those early days, hung on Jesus' every word. Do you think it ever entered their minds, you know, I'm not really sure I want to be disciple of Jesus, but I'm not really doing anything this afternoon, so I think I'll just give it a whirl. Now, that's kind of how we treat it today. But Jesus was teaching, and they were listening intently. The Samaritan woman, she didn't say, well, you know, I guess it's okay I've had enough men, though. I've had five, six, seven men that don't really have anything to, to offer. And I, I'm tired of all these times, so I'll just move on. No, Jesus confronted her. I know. I know you. And she said, I'm coming, Jesus. We're going to see that woman in heaven one of these days. She says, I'm coming. And then she runs through the village. A woman who probably prized her secrecy of her private life. Screaming at the top of the lungs, Come, let me tell you about a man who told me everything I've ever done. Serial adulteries. So what is it going to take? We've got to know Jesus. We've got to hear his word. We've got to be with his people. We've got to be knowing Christians who will encourage us. Everyone here needs a mentor. A disciple who has been a disciple longer or does it better by God's grace than you do. Who will bring you along. You might say, my family's enough. No, it's not. Coming here on Sundays is enough. No, it's not. It is not Two have got to work together because if one falls, who is going to lift him up? That brother will lift him up. And if he doesn't have anyone, he will fail. Jesus sent out disciples in twos. Why? Because we want to grow in our passion to love and serve one another. And then that leads us to obedience. A lot of times in the history of the church... When there has been a renewed passion on discipleship, 
discipline and obedience is just kind of thrown to the wind, along with the word. Oh, it's just a feeling. It's an emotion. What would Jesus do? But not if you understand discipleship. Because if you want to follow him, that leads you to his word. Because that is how we know him. That's how he reveals himself by his spirit. That's how I understand what it is to be a Christian. A third question I want us to think about today, and that is, where are we dividing or divided or being suspicious unnecessarily? Obviously, within a body, if you're not a church of the anonymous, you get to know people. So you learn they don't do things just the way I do them. They do things a bit different than I do, and they think differently on this or that, but it's not the essence of the gospel. I would never think they weren't a Christian because they did something this way and not my way. They're trying to apply Scripture and trying to understand it, but they come to, and from there you think, well, I don't know if I can ever get close to them. Particularly when we throw in, we know this is an age of low piety. So maybe it's just safer to keep most people at an arm's length. Because that way I can pursue piety on my little island instead of saying, you know what? Maybe we've gotten somewhat infected with all of this stuff about lesser issues. It's not wine and what we eat anymore, per se. Sometimes that does come up. It's not the observance of new moons and feast days either. That hardly ever comes up. Dietary laws, once in a while. But there are other things that are important, relatively speaking. But they're not at the heart of the gospel, of the love and the discipleship among believers. So we ought not to divide over them. If anything, we ought to learn from one another so that iron can sharpen iron. So maybe part of the problem with dividing over these kinds of issues is that most of the time we are just so wedded to our own views, so infatuated, we don't even know it. Anyone who doesn't have that view or hold that secondary thing it's like, well, they may be in the kingdom of God, but they'll be in the back row. Me and people like me will be on the front row. That is exactly the kind of thinking that potentially messes up the church, and it did in Rome. So what would Jesus say to us, to you and I here today? Would he say, I really see my love? and my joy, and my peace, and my humility, and my meekness, and my gentleness in this body that calls itself Reformed Heritage Church. Is that what he would say? I pray he would. I, I see it, but I'm not the judge. I'm not here to judge any of you on these matters. It is before our master that we will stand or fall, but that should be our desire. I want to see the love of Christ. I have heard some judgmentalism 
just time to time here. But Christ says, I want to see service. I want to see humility. I want to see you, said Jesus, washing one another's feet. But what if they hold to a really bad opinion about something? Well, I hate to tell you, but Jesus Christ died on the cross for people who have really bad opinions and don't understand biblical doctrine as they should and don't practice it even as they should. And if you don't think you are in that camp, he may not have died for you because Jesus did not come to call the righteous. He came to call sinners. So the only way we have any part of Christ is if we come to him with our leprosy and our filth and our uncleanness and say, Lord Jesus, you are my only righteousness. You are my only cleanness. You are my only purity. Save me. God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Then being thankful for his grace and mercy. We can deal with secondary issues that arise within the body and talk about them with meekness and learn from each other and say, maybe I do need to learn this. Maybe I do need to tighten up my practice a little bit over here. Maybe I need to loosen up a little bit, whatever it may be. But it's okay because it's not about me. It's not about you. It's not about a particular group or any organization. It's about whoever will come after me. Let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For me to live is Christ. So I want to serve him. Please, God, live acceptably towards men with humility, with righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Ghost. And saying with John over and over and over again, He must increase, but I must decrease. Amen. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for your word. And we pray that you would teach us and encourage us and humble us. Make us your disciples, particularly in this age of pride and arrogance and bitterness. Make us lovers of Jesus, to be thankful, to listen to one another, to feel our need for one another, to draw nearer to one another, to learn from one another, to freely confess that if I have an opinion, it doesn't mean it's right. Give us the meekness and gentleness that is in you. Thank you for your gospel truths, for your death and resurrection, and for the power to live lives that are pleasing to you, for Christ's sake. Amen.